3: And it actually turns out he was far, far worse than anyone could possibly imagine at pretty much everything he did. He is, I think, the worst king in English history.
1: That was Nicholas Vincent discussing King John.
0: listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
1: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about a man who's often cited as England's worst ever monarch. King John. Professor Nicholas Vincent is currently working on a new biography of the medieval king, and so we caught up with him to discover the fruits of his research. The interview took place at our York History Weekend event late last year, when Nicholas gave a talk on John. Putting the questions to him was our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning.
0: So where do we start with King John? He's generally written off as a monster, even in Disney films. His violence, lechery and greed were notorious. But just how bad was he?
3: The, the, The thing with John is that everyone's always trying to show that he wasn't really as bad as he's been made out to be. And so they try and say that he's a great general and that he was a great administrator and that he ran the country effectively and all of those sorts of things. And it actually turns out he was far, far worse than anyone could possibly imagine at pretty much everything he did. He is, I think, the worst king in English history.
0: And can you give me some examples of things that he did that give him this deserving title of Bad King John?
3: Okay, so the the one thing he did above all that no king can get away with, no politician can get away with, he failed in his principal endeavours. And there were two of those. One was that he should rule by justice, and he didn't rule by justice, he was unjust. And the other was that he should protect his people against foreign invasion. And on the contrary, he lost large parts of the lands that had been given to him by his father. So he lost an empire. That's As it were, that's the underlying story of John's reign. And then if you add into that the fact that he lusted after the wives and the daughters of his barons and that he murdered his own nephew either with his own hands or got someone else to do it, and that he extorted huge sums of money from his subjects, and that he twice was thrown out of his continental lands, and that his reign ended in the middle of a civil war after he'd been humiliated at Runnymede, uh, you begin to get some idea of the picture that um, we quite rightly have of this bad king.
0: If we take a few of those instances then, so for example, he was charged with killing his nephew. Well, people accuse him of killing his nephew, Arthur. We don't actually know that he did, but it's maybe suspected. Obviously to us today, that's, oh, that's terrible. That's really awful. But other kings through history have been accused of similar deeds. Richard III, for example, with the princess in the tower. Um, Would it have been terrible for a king at this time to have have killed someone, Arthur, who was aligning himself with the French king, Philip Augustus. Um, Was it not reasonable of John to take, if if he had killed him, would that not have been reasonable?
3: Kings in the past and would go on doing so in the future. Kings had locked up members of their own family. Rebellion was a common feature of this sort of familial kingship. But the example you give there is a good one because there aren't that many people today who think And we're in York. So there are some people here who think that Richard III was a great king. But most people think that Richard III was a right rotter and that that really, that that disappearance of the king's nephews, that that really did for Richard III. And the same is true of John. So instead of just locking up Arthur, if he locked him up, um, that was conceivable. Um, Henry I had done that with his brother, Robert Curtis a hundred years or so before. The king's brother, ruler of Normandy, Robert Curtis had rebelled, been locked up for a long, long time, for over 20 years. But that was it. He was locked up. He wasn't murdered. Um, Kings in the past had uh, murdered members of their family, but the ones who did so were always presented as tyrants. And if you look at the way that... The English regard, the Roman emperors, for example, who did this sort of thing, that was a classic instance of tyranny, that they murdered members of their own family. It just wasn't done.
0: One of the other notable things that is often trotted out when it comes to King John is that he starved the wife and son of a former friend of his to death yeah. in what they think it was Corfe Castle, or it might have been another castle. Which,
3: but There is a sort of uh, a disagreement over whether it is Corfe or Windsor. But in one of their dungeons, yes.
0: Um, well, firstly, would you, yeah, would you explain this incident of his reign to our listeners who might, might not be familiar?
3: When John came to the throne, he had a number of friends who'd grown up with him, who were more or less the same age as the king. William de Brayers was a little bit older. Uh, and the majority of them, he just dropped. The moment he became king, he just dropped people who'd been really very important to him. We all know people like that, who when they get into positions of authority, just don't want to have anything to do with the people they'd known before. And they keep some of those friends. So William de Braes remained in the King's friendship and he was enormously well rewarded with lands in Wales and in uh, Ireland and in Normandy. And then there was this sudden um, breach of friendship. Now, what it was about, we don't know. The best suggestion, in some ways the most plausible, but certainly the most interesting suggestion, is that William de Breus' wife, who was herself of very high birth, had begun gossiping about what happened to Arthur. And it was she that let the cat out of the bag that Arthur was indeed dead and had been murdered, either by the king or by assassins sent by the king. And that that led John to confiscate William's lands. Now, because William's lands were scattered across Wales and Ireland, that in turn involved John in invading Ireland. In 1210, there's another expedition that the king launched into Ireland. William de Bray was forced into exile in France and died in many ways, in the eyes of his contemporaries as a martyr to John, this tyrant, he died in Paris and his wife was locked up. The chroniclers tell us that they were supplied with no food or drink, and it's a very strange incidental detail, save for a small piece of bacon. And that when their bodies were discovered, the mother, William de Brioche's wife, and William de Brioche's eldest son, when they were discovered, The mother had the son on her lap and she'd already eaten a large part of his cheek. So there's this ghastly image. Uh, I mean, again, it's an image of tyrants throughout time, but tyrants who force their own friends and the families of those friends into acts of extraordinary barbarism. This, again, is terrible propaganda against the king.
0: How should John have kept um, rebellious nobles in check?
3: either by buying them off, by negotiating with them, or by showing that he was actually going to make peace with them, which nobody trusted John to do. Nobody, particularly after Arthur disappeared, but even before that, nobody could ever trust John's word. So, uh, contemporaries who wrote about the king's crimes generally drew attention to that. This was a king who preferred lies to truth. So, to make peace, you have to be trusted. Or you have to make concessions, or if that doesn't work, you actually have effectively to keep people out of the way. You have to lock them up, but you allow them their high status. You don't kill them. You don't treat them in a way that barbarians treat their prisoners. You keep them in a degree of comfort and security. Look at John's mother. John's mother rebelled against John's father. Eleanor of Aquitaine, the mother, rebelled against John's father, Henry II, in 1173. She was captured. And she was locked up for the next 20 years, but in really very comfortable confinement. So we have accounts for the purchase of cloth for her clothing and the cloth for her maids and chestnuts and things were brought to her uh, as delicacies. That's the way that you treat high-status prisoners. You don't kill them above all. You don't starve them to death.
0: It's interesting. Um, I think it all comes down with John, to what's expected of a medieval king. Yeah. And he completely went against what was expected of a medieval king. Now, historians generally tend to look at, when they consider John, they look at his reign as king, and they, they maybe ignore his life before then, which was twice the length of his reign. Um, what can you tell us about this time in John's life and how it shaped his future rule?
3: It's a very interesting instance of ignoring a large part of a story because the story you're trying to tell is another story altogether. The story that's generally told about King John is why Magna Carta happened. Magna Carta happened because of evil King John, and therefore we look for the roots of Magna Carta. We look to his reign as king. But as you quite rightly say, John had been, before he became king, he was king for 17 years. For 34 years, he'd ruled in other parts of his father's dominion, above all in Ireland. And in my view, that Irish experience was absolutely crucial to the way that he ruled once he came to the throne. You can see it even in the case of the Braeuses, that Ireland was central to that story of relations with William de Breos, But it was central in all sorts of other ways as well.
0: Now, to paint a bit of a picture, what was Ireland like at this time? And what were the, the rulers of Ireland? What were they like?
3: It's very difficult to distinguish propaganda from truth here. In the eyes of the English, Ireland was a kingdom or set of kingdoms. It was divided into five kingdoms uh, and those kings of Ireland went to war against one another, which is one reason why the English got involved because the various of those Irish kings at various times called upon aid from outside. It was a divided country. Now that's always, in English eyes, that's always a sign of things that are bad. And it was also a land that had never been civilised, it had never been brought under Roman rule. The Romans never conquered Ireland. Now, for large parts of Europe, although the Roman Empire was long gone, there was a big distinction to be drawn between those parts of the world that had been properly imperially governed and had a a memory of Roman imperial rule and places like Ireland that had never formed part of that Roman civilising empire. So, in the eyes of the English, Ireland was an uncivilized place. It was a place of wonders. It was a Christian kingdom, but was it really Christian in the way that England, with its cathedrals and its bishops, was Christian? Now, in the eyes of the Irish, there's no question about it, they were, they kept the faith when the Anglo-Saxons had long Reverted to paganism. It's a whole period in English history long before John, but where England became a pagan country after the departure of the Romans. The Irish kept the faith, but they kept it with a church that was very different from the church in Western Europe. So the church didn't much like the Irish. The Irish went their own way. They were sort of obedient to the Pope, but they weren't in other ways. And then In the eyes of contemporaries, the Irish did the sorts of things that you weren't supposed to do if you were a chivalric, Western, imperializing people. If you took prisoners, you didn't kill them. Think of John. If you imprisoned women, you didn't mistreat those women. Think of John. If you took children prisoner, you didn't mistreat them or kill them. Think of John. Now, all of those things mistreating women, murdering prisoners rather than ransoming them. You, You don't murder high status prisoners because you might make some money out of them. And above all, disparaging women. Those are all the absolute opposite of what a chivalric Western ruler should do. And they are things that the Irish did. And they are techniques that John himself had used when he had ruled in Ireland before he came to the throne in England.
0: He was actually Lord of Ireland. Was that the title that he had at the time?
3: He wanted to be King of Ireland, but there is a difficulty there, because if you have an Irish king, what's his relation to another king going to be? Kings are supposed to be equals. So to have an Irish king would be a dangerous thing to do. So he wasn't allowed to be king in Ireland. He began calling himself Lord of Ireland, Dominus Hiberniae. Interestingly, it's the same title his grandmother, Matilda, used when she ruled in England. She called herself not Queen of England, dangerous title, a ruling queen. Should women actually sit on the throne? It's not clear. Um, but she called herself Lady of the English. So the chances are that he he remembered that and used that title. But in all intents and purposes, he was king in Ireland, yes.
0: You actually mentioned in your talk earlier tonight that he was the only ruler of England to go to Ireland until Queen Victoria, more than once?
3: More than once. So uh, many, well, not many, but some kings went to Ireland. Richard II famously went to Ireland, but they never went back. And often their Irish expedition, as with Richard II, Uh, That was the prelude to Richard losing power in England. I mean, what went on in Ireland was seen as uh, an example of Richard's inability to rule the English. So Ireland, in English mythology and in truth, in historical truth, Ireland had been a place where exiles went. Harold went there um, in the reign of Edward the Confessor. Um, Harold's sons are said to have gone to Ireland after the Norman Conquest. Uh, Richard of York, fomenting that rebellion against um, Henry VI, Edward IV, later on. He too went to Ireland. So Ireland was a place where rebels went. But John went there and ruled not once, but twice, 1185 and again in 1210.
0: I'm, I'm kind of curious. I mean, if you say that his, his attitude to ruling was sort of founded in Ireland, how was it? Was it by actually being there or was it by reading about Ireland? He
3: probably spent, all told, about a year, maybe a little bit more in Ireland, in 1185 and 1210, if you combine those two visits. But that's not really the crucial point. The crucial point is that Ireland was really the theatre in which he moved as principal ruler. In France, he controlled quite a lot of land, but he wasn't an independent ruler. In England, he controlled the whole of Western England, Devon, Dorset, Cornwall, Lancaster, He controlled southern Wales, but not as an independent ruler. He was always under the thumb of the kings of England. Ireland was the only place he ruled, and therefore he was engaged for almost 20 years, perhaps even more than 20 years before he became king of England, in Irish politics. And although he may not have been physically there, he was engaged regularly in sorting out problems in his Irish kingdom. And he did that through the classic technique of government in Ireland, which is a combination of violence and undermining anybody beneath him, making people fight one another in order that he could be top dog.
0: And this obviously didn't stand him in good stead when it came to his own rule and dealing with his barons, who, as we know, (laughs) became very discontent with him. And this is, you know, leading up to Magna Carta. Um, Could you perhaps tell our listeners about the lead up to Magna Carta and why John so angered the barons?
3: Well, let's go back to that stoning people up and up. See, kings, it's a very... Effective technique. Look at modern politicians, read a newspaper, look at the way that politics works. One way of ruling effectively is by stirring up people against one another. So you stir up your political enemies and you hope that they'll be so busy fighting one another that they'll ignore the fact or they'll overlook the fact that you are actually exercising power. That will work for a while but then it will become horribly unstuck because people will realise that you are actually a sneaky so-and-so and and that you are deliberately stirring them up against one another. And when they realise that, they tend to combine against you. And that seems to be what happened to the barons under John. So the barons put up with a lot. They put up with a king who was lustful, who clearly did have affairs with their wives and daughters. They put up with a king who took their money, in order to pay for reconquest in France, which he then failed to accomplish. They put up with the king who used large amounts of money to pay for his own personal desires. They didn't give a damn what went on in Ireland in many cases, but a large part of the money that the king raised in taxation went to pay for the king's Irish affairs. But they would not put up with that after a certain point. So in 1214, John squandered all of the money that he'd built up over the last 10 years. He'd taxed his people to an extraordinary extent. He did tax the church. He spent all of that money on an invasion of France. And that invasion failed miserably. John's army in the north was wiped out. John himself in the south on the Loire was forced to retreat into England. And the barons now realised that really they were either going to have to force the king into a settlement or potentially even kill him. That the only way that they were going to be able to deal with John was to be as brutal with John as John had shown himself to be with them.
0: Was this the first time that in England um, the English went to war over what the king's role should look like?
3: It's the first time that warfare in England was fought according to a political manifesto there had been bad kings in the past and people had rebelled against them in order to reassert justice but this is the first time where they'd actually had a program rather than a person they didn't go to war in 1215 to put someone else on the throne of england to put the king's brother or the king's cousin or the king's uncle on the throne they went to war to make the king rule justly and they had a checklist of what they wanted done. And that does set it apart from rebellions in the past, yes.
0: was Magna Carta a result of John, or was it a result of decades of resentment that maybe had built up before John came to rule?
3: Okay, it's a combination of rebellion against a tradition of government that goes back a long way, even before John's father, even back to William the Conqueror, and you could say into the dim distant past. That's part of it. But it wouldn't have happened in quite the way it did had John not been quite the monster that he was. So whether it would all have been written down in quite that way and forced on the king in the way that it was, if John weren't a notorious liar and breaker of his word, I doubt.
0: It's a little bit of a straw that broke the camel's back situation. Yes. <laughs> yes.
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
0: 1216, yep. so he officially, well, he died from dysentery, as the, the records would yep. tell us, at a time when the barons were openly calling for um, King Philip of France's heir, Prince Louis of France, to be King of England, um, but John died, yes. This Prince Louis didn't become King of England. If John hadn't died, could we have been looking at a very different England where maybe we'd have had a French, French King?
3: That's certainly quite possible. Uh, he said to have died not just of dysentery, but of dysentery brought on by drinking new cider and eating unripe peaches, which is a wonderful oh, combination <laughs> of foodstuffs. Um, what would have happened? Kings in England are immensely rich. They still are, but they, they certainly were in the Middle Ages. They are immensely rich. It's very difficult to, to get them out. You've got to contend with the fact the king's got more resources, got more money, he can hire more soldiers than you can. And always the clock is ticking against a rebellion. So maybe the rebellion would have come to an end. Maybe royal authority would have reasserted itself. Maybe as did indeed prove to be the case, the barons wouldn't get on with the French any better than they'd got on with John. Or maybe John would actually have confronted Louis of France and the barons in battle and have been killed You brought up the example of Richard III. And then what would have happened? Who knows?
0: Mm -hmm. It's an interesting what if. I'm curious if the barons necessarily wanted a French king on the throne or they just wanted John out is more of the the point.
3: What do subjects want when they rebel? They don't generally want a new king. Mm. They don't generally want a better king. They want no king. They'd much rather have no king. And many of them would quite like themselves to imagine that they might make rather a good king. And that's one of the reasons that those rebellions always break down because there is always going to be fighting amongst the rebels because who, once the dust is settled, who is actually going to seize power? And that's always the problem they have because the one person who is the most likely to reassert his authority is the king himself or the king's heirs.
0: I wanted to ask you, this is a bit of a a random question. There's this interesting story about whether King John was murdered. So as the rumour goes... I think it's this story started going what? around in the 13th century a monk heard king john talking about price of a loaf of bread and talking about how he wanted to it would go from half a penny to 20 shillings if he got his way yes. the monk heard this the monk of decided to poison king yeah. john well where did this story come
3: from well it comes you say it so circulated at the time no it didn't okay. that's a very very elaborate version um At the time, John's body was divided. So John's heart was buried in, I think eventually, Bewley, eventually. Um, His viscera, his intestines were buried where he died and his body was carried for burial in Worcester. And in all of those events, monks were involved. So the the chroniclers at the time were aware that monks were around at the time of John's death. But the stories you're talking about are really much later. They come about after the Reformation in England in the 16th century, at which stage monks and anything to do with the Catholic Church are bad. In all fiction written in England from the 1530s through, you could say, to the 19th century, there are plenty of terrible novels written in the 19th century about what really goes on in monasteries and nunneries. In all of those Protestant retellings of King John, monks are evil, and therefore a horrible evil monk steals up on the king and murders him. Um, But that's a much later elaboration of something that wasn't told in that way in the 12th and 13th centuries.
0: So a nice bit of propaganda against monks. It's kind of actually funny that if King John was such a hated figure, even down the years, that... um, that was then used as an example of why a monk was evil to yeah, kill this exactly. evil man. That's a yeah, weird. This is,
3: <laughs> yeah, in some retellings, that makes him a hero. In, indeed, in that version you've given, he's going to save the price of bread. He's going to save the people of England from having to pay too much for their loaf. So, um, But assassins in general are very bad things. They've always been so. Roman history, English history, French history, American history, assassins don't get a good price.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. We also, we recently actually asked our BBC History magazine readers to tell us which history mystery they would like to see huh. solved. Yes. <laughs> well, can you, you can guess that uh. their answer was the discovery of King John's yes. jewels, <laughs> which he reportedly lost in the mud of the Fenlands in eastern England. So what can you tell us about this legend?
3: There are many people uh, who've gone out into the fens and have bought themselves metal detectors or divining water, divining equipment, or goodness knows what else, who are, in my view, really wasting a great deal of their time and a great deal of money. We don't really know what was lost. We don't know what was lost. In all likelihood, it was the King's Chapel. Now, that would have been rich furnishings, and there may have been some crowns, and there may have been some money but it's lost in the shifting sands and mud of the estuary, the wash, and it's long gone. And I am sure that the extent of that loss was exaggerated at the time. It was exaggerated partly because it showed that nature itself turned against the king just before he died. And think back to the retelling of history... It, to those who are writing this in the 13th century, this is contemporary history, That they looked back to examples in the past. What kings had been punished in the past? Pharaoh was punished when Moses divided the Red Sea and then the chariots of Pharaoh were swept away by God, punishing the Egyptians for keeping the Israelites captive. Well, that's a straightforward version of what happened to John in the wash. John made his way across the estuary, but then the, the tidal waters, by God's grace, were brought to destroy him and his baggage. So we're really in the world of myth-making, of, of metaphor, for what happens to tyrants, like Pharaoh, like John.
0: Mm-hmm. What history mystery would you like to see solved?
3: Why is the world running mad at present?
0: <laughs> when we um, like all to know the answer to that?
3: <laughs> serious, at serious, strange moments in history? And it does recur. It's a recurring feature. Why do people begin doing things that you would not credit them? You'd imagine that they had more sense than to do. And mm-hmm. that's what I would like to understand. The, the crooked, warped nature of humanity. It's fascinating.
0: <laughs> that it is. Um, just to bring it back to John, we're nearing the end of the podcast now. Um, did I mean, we talk about bad King John, but did he do any good?
3: Uh, he built great castles, which are still there. And he was clearly like Charles I. Although he may have been a terrible king, he was a patron of the arts. It's, it's interesting. Look at his seal. His seal is the most glorious example of a royal seal that any king of England had borne up to that point. He, he clearly went for the very best. He spent lavishly. He was a great host, even after Runnymede. What did he do? Immediately after the charter was sealed, invited the barons to dinner to show off, no doubt, the new furnishings and fittings at Windsor Castle. But he was a great patron of the arts. Mm-hmm. And I think he also provided a great model of what bad kings do. So yes, I mean Magna Carta may not have actually mattered that much at the time, or at least in very different ways from the way it's mattered since. But John gives a great example to later kings of what not to do: <laughs> keep your word. That's an essential part of of good government. Do what you say you're going to do. Now. Obviously, that's a bit (laughs) dangerous if you say you're going to do strange things. But governments or kings that don't keep their word tend not to last very long.
0: Mm -hmm. Will we ever have another King
3: John? In my view, no. Um, There have been various suggestions. John of Gaunt in the 14th century, people said, shall we have another King John? No more King John. The only John that's been in that family since is that poor lost prince, the son of George V, the epileptic Prince John, who died in 1919, 19, I think age 15. And uh, again, that's a, a rather sad reflection on the fact that that is not a name that is widely used within the ruling family.
0: Mm-hmm. So any royal babies in the future, we can rule out John, I think.
3: Again, look around you, anything is possible.
0: (laughs) Anything is possible. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's been a pleasure having you. And thank you again for speaking at our York History Weekend. We hope to see you again in the future. Thank you very
3: much, Rachel.
1: That was Nicholas Vincent. His biography of King John is due to be published by Penguin early next year. And Nicholas has written a feature on John, which appears in our April issue that's on sale now. Look out for it in all good retailers and in our many digital formats. And that's about it for today, but we'll be back on Monday to talk about the Highland Clearances.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library.